0: Hi everyone, welcome to the 15 Minute Film Fanatics. You're listening to this podcast a- after the fact, but a happy Thanksgiving to everybody. It's, it's a weird one. We're all indoors, plenty of time to, uh, to watch movies. So, uh, you know, we're, we're doing our part here. Dan's with me and let's get rolling. This week's pick is 1981's An American Werewolf in London. Uh, I have to say this was my pick. This is one of my favorite movies. I've not talked to Dan about this movie at all kind of just fits in with the theme of the season that we're wrapping up right now. Dan, what is your overall take of this film?
1: Fascinating, first, that we have never talked about this as long as we've known each other. And when you, when Mike proposed it, I said, oh yeah, that's a really good movie because I have not seen it since it first came out. And I saw it a number of times. I remember we we, when we got HBO, it was like we were living in the future and this was on HBO. So I just watched it on a loop over and over and over. So seeing it now, decades later, it was a fun experiment to see if it still holds up. It, of course, it totally does. Um, it makes you, it makes you um, sad that John Landis couldn't keep going, but then again, you know, after the Twilight Zone thing, you, you really can't. Um, but it's so well-directed. I love the fact that it's right on the cusp before everything was ruined with CGI. So of course, the whole movie is an excuse for the transformation scene. That it, it, that was written first. He said, we're gonna do, we're gonna, I don't know if he did or not, I'm just speaking hypothetically, but we're gonna do a thing where, um, not like in the Lon Chaney version, where he kind of fades in and out in the dark and things like that. It's gonna be in full light in a modern apartment with a college kid who doesn't come from a, a cursed family or something like that, like the Talbots. And we're gonna watch the whole thing beginning to end. And I'm gonna make that look really great. I'll write the whole movie around that. So the whole movie revolves around that set piece. I think it does so beautifully. I think the script is terrific. Um, and there's a couple of things else we could talk about it, but I really, I really enjoyed it. I even enjoyed the opening credits with looking at the Moors. How about you?
0: I love this movie. Uh, it is one of my perennial favorites. It's actually a favorite of my mom's. So I watched this movie, you know, grow the, the uh, some of the appropriate parts of this movie, uh, growing up, you know, she have to have it on, especially for the transformation scene, which I think is, it's more terrifying you wouldn't think that it's more terrifying to see somebody turn into a monster than to get ripped apart by a monster. But that seems to me to be the thesis of the film, Yes, is there's a lot of gruesome comedy uh, in the different people. We can talk about this in a minute where he's on his rampage around London, right? He's like It's like Dickensian characters by the river and you have a little splash of Woodhouse or Evelyn Wall with the upper crust people playing pranks on one another. But the truly terrifying scene is the way that he screams all of a sudden when he gets that fever, right? Because yeah. you you think, well, what would it be like to transform into a monster? That, that doesn't, does it hurt? You know, you, do, do you feel sick? Do you feel nauseous? And the way that they handle it in the film, it would have been so cheesy for him to be like, oh my God, I don't feel well, which is not what happens. He's sitting reading a book and he stands up and just like a character in The Exorcist or something else, or when the guy, when he sees the wicker man, he starts to scream, he, oh, Jesus Christ, help me, help me, help me and turns into the wolf man. Um, that transformation, of course, uh, handled by the same fella uh, who did Michael Jackson's Thriller video, and and like you said, just some of the greatest practical effects uh, that that I've ever seen.
1: Absolutely, and it's great too because. Uh, I love how the whole moment before the transformation is, you get that funny montage where he's where you hear the bad moon rising, and it's like, I'm not hungry, I'm still not hungry. And he's just walking around, and he's just waiting to see if anything's gonna happen. And it's so great because you're in the exact same shoes, except that you know something's gonna happen. He's just hoping all his nightmares are about to pay off. And, and, and it's, so that's such a, it's great that he's reading the book or trying to read the book, and he just stands up and goes, ah! <laughs> like perfectly done and to show the pain of what it must be like to have all your feet extended and your and know your, your hand get longer and things like that you know you can imagine some hipster no offense to the hipsters out there watching that today and saying well you know the oh today that would look so much better and my answer would be yeah it would look better i guess i guess in some way, the CGI would look so much better if you did it today, but you might have a, a more lousy performance. The script wouldn't be as good. You wouldn't be as emotionally invested. as uh, uh, So, of course, David Naughton screaming and the fact that you're on this kind of journey with this guy makes makes the transformation scene so much better.
0: Well, I want to talk briefly about structure because the structure of that scene, and we'll, we can get into our other moments, but this yeah. is, of course, when you moment. talk about American Werewolf in, in London, this is the moment. Right. Um, this is your moment. No, it wasn't. You, I, okay. I don't think you can pick that as your moment because- You it's... can't. Uh, so so let's talk briefly about structure. When you have a movie like the original Wolfman, which you told, you know, the, the guy fades out- I just now. watched this morning again with my son. He, he fades out and then he turns into a werewolf, right? Part of what's going on in that scene is uh, it, it opens an, an interpretation that we are, we're all some kind of monster inside and this just lets out the- mo- That is not possible in this movie that this movie makes clear to you that what's going on to, with him is unnatural and it's something beyond human, right? And the, the structure of the film in order to create some kind of meaning means he would he would transform and we'd all get our thrill, but something would stop him from killing a couple of people and then maybe he slips and kills one. You, you know, you can imagine a screenwriter writing the movie. That's also not what happens in this movie. He goes on the exact kind of rampage that he's been warned about and kills more than a handful of people,
1: yeah.
0: which, it, it, which is... Unbelievable that you can combine that with the kind of comedy that John Landis gets out of this movie.
1: Yeah, and it's funny because, you know, I thought the same exact thing when I was watching it. When Griffin Dunn says to him from beyond the grave, he's like, he says words to the effect of, I hope I get the quote right. You know, David, uh, that supernatural stuff, yeah, it's all real. It's it's all real.
0: <laughs> we, we don't have to enumerate it, but it's it's the it's the stuff that you all thought as a kid.
1: Yes, absolutely. All right, let's go to our moments in part two.
0: Sounds good. Welcome back in part two. We like to talk about our key scenes. You know what we do. Dan, what's yours?
1: That's enough. That's enough. So that's my moment when the guy from the pub starts screaming at the other guy when he's trying to speak to the doctor in the raid. And of course, after I saw it, I just wanted to walk around the house screaming at people. That's enough. And the reason i love that so much is because it reminded me completely of the wicker man it's it's so funny how these movies were watching how we had three movies in a row with like a well in it and now it's like oh another movie with a strange closed village where all the people gather at the pub that gets really quiet when the outsider and the it comes in and it, i just think it's so great because like, that's never really explained either. Like, what deal did the, did the people at East Proctor make? You know, well, we'll put the thing on the wall and we'll light the candles and things like that. But I think it's great that that whole scene with the doctor going in there is only in there because I think this movie would be an hour long, like the original Wolfman, if you didn't have certain scenes to pad it. And I don't mean to pad it because that implies that the scenes are, you don't need them in there, but the whole scene with the doctor going there, that scene could be done in, in 30 seconds like all of his nightmares, they're, they're, you gotta wait till, for the transformation, but you can't have the transformation come a half hour into the movie. So I think that that scene is just enough suspenseful, just suspenseful to get the doctor in there so that later at the end of the movie, he's there to see the nurse when they go to the alley and stuff like that. So I just think it's funny that it's, a you know, the American, you know, is already out of place in the pub <laughs> and, then, and then the doctor's out of place in the pub. So it's about these movies we like where like this little closed bubble, you know, as we said, of Rosemary's baby gets broken by somebody.
0: Well, I have more on that in part in part three, but I will say that my 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 favorite thing about the structure of this movie, which which is is weird, and we can we can talk about at the end, is how um it allows for how much comedy uh, John Landis is able to wring out of the first scene where they come in out of the cold and they yep. sit down at the pub where they're looking at the pentacle, with the two candles on on the wall. Uh, because in any other movie, it's part of the backdrop. It's for the audience to notice and not for the character to notice because the characters obviously have to make bad decisions or there's no plot. Yes. How can you have a plot without bad decisions? But in, <laughs> in, this, in this movie, of course, our two heroes are going, uh, excuse me, what is that? And they don't, nobody wants to do that.
1: Which Griffith Dunn would, ne- he would never say that in real life. No one would stop this pub full of weirdos. It's like, excuse me, like over the joke telling when the guy's tell the joke about, and he throws out the Mexican, like over that joke. Excuse me, what's that on the wall? Like you, you wouldn't do that. You just wouldn't, but he has to to make the bad decision to make the plow work. That's great.
0: Ah, uh, it's, uh, I, I I. just, I love so many things about this movie. And of course, classic John Landis car chase. I mean, okay. I, I understand. Like that now, is that your moment? I yeah I understand that this is kind of the the impulse that gets John Landis in trouble but um but god did he really did he really know what to do with a car chase or what
1: well see I think yeah, that made me laugh but almost at see I think when you're talking about when David's walking down the Piccadilly yeah. Circus as a as a wolf and the cars are all crashing and people are yeah. flying through the windshield that made me laugh because it was so Gratuitous and so ridiculous like what does this guy have like it's like that JG Ballard novel Crash I'm like does he have car crash porn because I think all the car crashes in the Blues Brothers are great but in this one they seem totally out of place like I do not need to see people crash cars I wouldn't like, put the camera on the wolf put the camera on David
0: I, I think it reacts exactly the way that you would if you had a giant monster running down in, in other words the, yeah, the thing I that mean, bothers me about his first transformation is that Someone, you know, they reportedly see a mysterious creature, but nothing happened. But in this way, it, like in Florida, if you had a mysterious creature running down the street, which sometimes happens, you'd have car accidents and the authorities yeah. would, would take any excuse that they could to unload as many bullets into that thing as possible.
1: That's true. You said it, about his. that's pretty funny. You said about his car crash fetish. But the other thing, you know, the, oh, the only thing in this movie that made me roll my eyes, speaking of fetishes, is, is that when he decided that in the middle of the movie, it was going to become Last Tango in London. Like, I think, I think that when, di- when she says, I'm going to take a shower and the camera's on David Norton, he makes that kind of face and he goes, hmm, at least, and you just hear Van Morrison kick on. That's all you need. You don't need, you don't need five minutes of him and her in the shower. And that whole, like, I got the impression I'm like, John Landis seems like a very, very like sleazy old man in a dirty raincoat, holding up a camera to
0: make this scene. Like, he was, he was younger than I am now. I know, at, I know. I know it, but he seems
1: is- like, it seems like it's a leering scene. It does nothing yeah. for the movie.
0: However, I will tell you that he re- apparently rewatched the film when they were thinking about remaking it. And when uh, asked for his comments, he said he would have shortened the transformation scene and lengthened the sex scene. So, well, that's I, exactly. I, I, <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. So, yes, he was younger than I am right now when he made the movie. But at the same time, uh, it, it appears that yeah. you're likely right. That sex scene um, was no,
1: so gratuitous and so my, ridiculous.
0: My favorite scene is still my favorite scene as a kid. Uh, and my favorite uh, light motif as a kid, which is how his friend decays every single time he appears sure. um, and looks worse and worse and worse. Those <laughs> practical are, are great. Um, I got nothing to say about it except that uh, it's wonderful and it's, it's certainly stuck in the mind. Yes. So it's one of the first things I think that w- when I think about this movie, it's not necessarily the transformation or him running around as a monster. It's the comedy of his friend telling him, coming back from the grave to give him a warning to kill himself.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I thought it was great too. And I remembered that not seeing the movie in decades, like I said, I still remembered how terrible—and that's a compliment to the good makeup job—how terrible Griffin's done Griffin Dunn's neck looks the first time he comes back in the hospital. Because the third time, you, you know, he's got the, the, the you know the skull kind of puppet. But um, the, the first time when there's like bits of flesh dangling there, and how strange that was, and uh, and how it's still strange.
0: It's so good. All right, let's talk. Let's talk about more about the structure and the overall theme of the film in part three. Good.
1: Hi, welcome back. So in part three, we always talk about the title or about the ending or about our overall take. So Mike, title, ending, overall take, what do you think?
0: So, okay, the, the title seems very literal, American Werewolf in London, but I, I like this movie. And also, you know, we, we watch a lot of movies critically. I watch a lot of movies critically. And also my spider senses tingle at this movie and tell me that there's something there. Meaning, there there's movies that I just like because I like them. And then, but this this is 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 operating on a number of cylinders. But it it doesn't have a traditional structure. Meaning, hit uh, David's death apparently means nothing, as you said. It the the whole movie seems like a setup for the transformation scene, which is totally true. Um, He's not saved at the end. He's not redeemed. He doesn't save anybody. It, exactly what ha- the movie doesn't allow for any coincidence. It's like what would happen if I turned into a giant monster, right. I would go on a rampage, and then I would get shot and die, and that would be you know that would be the end of me. So the question then is is why London is what's what's really going on um, in this film, and what does and what does American mean? And I'm the I'm the last person to reach for you know um, continental or Marxist theory. Uh, but in this but in this film there's just some weird stuff going on especially with the posters and using england as a as an economic backdrop of of what's going on which makes me feel like i i'm not saying people put their fingertips together or said ah this will be the perfect thing for our socioeconomic points but it it makes sense as a gag to have an American running around in London for a very specific reason. And I guess like if I were to if I had to pinpoint a specific moment so to, for, what for what I'm talking about, if you look at the posh guy in London who' who gets chased down the subway mm. um, by David, all the posters on the wall, it's it, this we're not in Merry Old England. There's like a Wendy's poster yeah, right on the there's wall
1: an you, and like there's, there's American movie posters.
0: That that he that he runs by, and so there there's something about about money and globalization and and England not England being England, but not really England at the same time. And I think that that's actually what makes the pub scenes um, so powerful. Meaning even the even the doctor who's who's very posh, he's posh, but he's 19, he's 1981. In yeah. 1981, he ap- he ap- appears to go back in time to real England, and he doesn't belong there either. They they kick him out. They tell him that there's there's nothing here for you. There's
1: nothing for you, yes.
0: I mean, it's more than just the Wendy's poster. It's the fact that they're watching the Muppet Show. It's little things that, that spring up uh, on the walls when you least expect it all over London. It's like American culture is a beast on the loose in London.
1: Which he tries, and it's funny, because he tries to act like that beast when he tries to get arrested.
0: Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And he, so, and the the thing that that the thing that really keyed me off, besides the Wendy's poster, is when um, he steals the kid's balloons. And the, kid, the kid doesn't say, "Hey, a naked man yeah. stole my balloons." But, he says, "An American stole American. my balloons." And that, you know, I I think that again, that's not a whole fleshed out theory. That's just what's operating at the surface level uh, in this film, even if it's just in the impulse of the director to say. We could set this in Birmingham, Alabama. We could set this anywhere, but it, it's gotta be in London.
1: Yeah, and that's why he kills, that's why the first night uh, when he goes on his rampage, he only murders types.
0: <laughs> that's exact. It's, it's like it's like vaudeville.
1: Yeah. It's
0: vaudeville Britain.
1: Like he only murders British characters. He doesn't murder actually real people, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, well, and, and he, he he murders British characters in Margaret Thatcher's England.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. He's an he's an outsider. So he's he's picked up like the little yellow Google Maps guy and just dropped into this, into onto the moors and, and where this terrible thing happens. And he, he has no um he has no reference to go back to. Like all he can do is stay with is stay with the nurse. He has he has no home base. So there's that scene where he calls home and tells Rachel to accept the charges and things like that because he's afraid he's gonna kill he thinks he's gonna kill himself. So I think it makes you um, side, quote unquote, with David more because you're on his side because you're you know you're you're watching this thing. He's out of his element. He's super likable. He's young. It's also that, and you know, in the original, in the 1941 film, the whole premise is that that you know Lawrence Talbot's been in America for 18 years and then he comes back home to Talbot Castle, comes back to England and he's been like kind of Americanized, and then he gets bitten by, by Bell Lugosi and becomes the wolf, so that's kind of funny. Let yeah, me go back to something else you said about the ending. I love how you said it's what would happen if you became a werewolf. Like There wouldn't be some like deep metaphor, deep structure, like they would just find you and shoot you. To me, the end of this movie, and I, I, this is not going to come, come across as an insult at all, but clearly, I think, he really didn't know how to end it, and it ends exactly with the same vibe as the Holy Grail. It's got, it's got the same exact ending. It doesn't end, it just stops. And I, and I think the Holy Grail is like one of the greatest movies ever made, but it's kind of funny. Remember the Holy Grail, how it ends? The cops just come and go, ah! and the guy puts his can over the camera and that's it. So this one, they shoot him. There's that moment where his, his, his snarl goes down a little bit, but you don't know if he recognizes her. Does he, does he jump at her so that they shoot him on purpose to break the cycle like Griffin Gryffindon wanted? But then again the night before he says he doesn't remember doing anything so he can't be con- is he conscious of it? you don't know and i don't think john Landis knew i think when they show him naked in the alley and the credits come on that made me laugh the first time i saw it because i was like uh oh, uh yeah okay i guess that's uh that's the world's case but what did you make of the very very ending it
0: it, it resists in interpretation so it's got a lot of ideas but it resists interpretation so like let's let's just take a classically structured film like something like shrek Okay. You know, Strech has, has a real structure. Somebody gets turned into a monster, and then the his or his bride is turned into a monster, and then they they live happily as monsters, and that you know you should just be who you are. And that has a that has a classical structure with the meaning that fits in it that fits into it. But this is this is again, this is very different. This would be like if he got turned into a monster, his bride didn't get turned into a monster, and then they lived apart, and now that, that's what happened. Right. Which you know, which which is resisting interpretation, you can go looking for it. But again, I, I think that the movie has more visual impulses than, than anything else, more than um, impulses uh, of meaning. Uh, but the, the, the camera is very clear. Uh, the camera doesn't have any ambiguity about what it's showing. When, it, when David's on the screen, you know whose side you're on. When the victim is on the screen, you know whose, whose side you're on. The, 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 the shots, the visual focus of the movie is, is beautiful. There's no, there's no mix-ups. Anywhere, um, when when David as a wolf attacks somebody, you enter the scene at the right time, right? Think about think yeah. about how clear those three kind of Dickensian river characters are as extras. They're in the film for like five minutes, uh, but they're so beautifully fleshed out that when I when I refer to them, you know where the scene is because there's just enough establishment to get them in and get them out, and then have them come back as ghouls um, in the porn theater when they're when they're all sitting there to tell him to kill himself. And so everybody and everything is operating at exactly the right level, but not, not enough that you could sink your fingers into anything. And I think actually that's what makes the film work. If, if, if this film, this film would have to be about a hundred times more complicated to have a meaning structure, but still be <laughs> cool. Yeah, you, you, there's no apologies and there's no explanation, which, I, which is I think what helps make the film irresistible.
1: Absolutely. All right. So thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about American Werewolf in London. Uh, Please follow us on Twitter at 15MIMFilm and please let us know what to watch next.
0: Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Happy
1: Thanksgiving. Always be closing, Mike. Always be
0: closing. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started.